If it sounds like it could be the soundtrack to a magical moment, I'd probably fall in love with it. You know, if it's if it sounds like curiosity, I probably love it. If it sounds like what the fuck's about to happen, I probably love it. You know, and that spreads across across many genres. I think that's what allowed me to, you know, produce a record for Pro and then produce a record for Cameron Bethany, um, and then produce my own record. And it sounds nothing like any of those. I think the thing that stands out about me as a producer and I think attracts people is that I'm, I listen, I am detailed, uh, you know, these are two rappers, but you'll never hear me produce a song for either of them that could sound like it would be for the other. Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. Thanks for joining us. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. Sonosphere had a pretty busy summer that was full of excitement. During the warmer months, Chris and I visited Dirty Socks Studios, which is the base camp for Unapologetic. The studio is a sanctuary for those who dare to commit to their craft. The theme is dedication. Dedication to yourself and your mission. Unapologetic is a collective that looks to push Memphis forward. The collective is a cast of characters that are as odd as their aliases. Led by I Make Mad Beats, Unapologetic has put the city on notice. Memphis has the reputation that you have to leave to make it in most industries, especially in music. Non-Memphians tend to capitalize on the Memphis sound. Unapologetic is changing that notion. This starts in Dirty Sock Studios, where we will pick up our conversation. Um, I think I had to be around 19, and around this time, like, I was new to, like, making music or new to the music Memphis scene, so anytime I was at a show, I probably was one of the first people there. I was pretty quiet to myself, and, um... I thought I would have been the first person at this show, but I was wrong. So um, I get to the venue, it's an all-white venue, and I see this guy with a hoodie and, and a hat on, just in the distance, like, setting up his DJ booth. So, you know, I, I walk over there, introduce myself. I'm like, you know, hey, my name's Fro. Uh, who are you? Like, I make mad beats. And, you know, I introduced myself. He's like, oh, I heard a couple things about you. So I'm like, all right, cool. So, you know, and I, uh, he just looked at me like, okay. You know, like, in, in sense of intrigue, but, you know, I don't really know you, but I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to wait till you rock. And, um... I remember what really made me, like, really just be like, yo, this dude's dope. And I, I'm sitting there by myself, just in my phone, and he just starts spinning. Like, I just only me and him in the room, his open area, he just starts spinning. And, like, this man is spinning, like, almost every joint that I favorited, like, growing up. Like, he going through, like, Kanye West Diamonds. Like, he going through like, just different mixes, like, records. And now, now I can realize, I think this man was, like, testing me. Uh, just trying to see, you know, <laughs> pick my attention. But he, he definitely got it. And I remember I just looked up, like, yo. 
yo, you really, you really super dope, man. And he was just like, yeah, you know, what's up? We should definitely get up. Uh, <laughs> but at this time, I was actually rocking with a record label called Western Records. So uh, I couldn't really uh, work with him around the time. But uh, in that initial reaction, he was just like, uh, yo, we should definitely get up. And um, I guess that's where it began. And then it, uh, it all picked up like a year, a year later. I make mad beats, CEO, founder, and producer for Unapologetic. You kind of honed your skills up in New York, right? Yes, yes indeed. What made you want to bring that back to Memphis? I didn't want to bring it back to Memphis. Uh, <laughs> I came back, I was in New York, uh, you know, battling New York, and in my mind, winning. <laughs> of course, you suffer losses. It's, it's never a straight, you know, you don't just murder New York. It's, no it's, it's a back and forth fight. Uh, in my mind, I was winning. But I got a call you know, regarding some family, and, um, you know, I've always been an extremely driven guy, um, to my detriment a lot of the times, and, um, and so the kind of call that I got and the kind of health situations at hand, I just knew uh, I had been away from my family, you know, for too long, and uh, it was time to, you know, come back home, at least temporarily, um, you know, because... I just said it up. I just say this. At that time in my life, the world was letting me know that some things meant more than music and more than my ambitions or goals. And so I came back here, and uh, and you know, I hopped back into the world with my family, and and uh, I was kind of down at the time, you know, musically um, and creatively. I was kind of down, to be honest. Um, but you know, within my first year of being back here, I went out. Uh, somebody dragged me out because, uh, you know, I was I had just planned to just live in, in my new studio and just work with the people I was working with abroad, you know, or just via the Internet, my clients and stuff, uh, continue making music for licensing opportunities. And uh, somebody dragged me out one day and I went to a hip hop show here and it just wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll mention this very briefly. I escaped Memphis. Uh, so I didn't just happen to leave or leave because some opportunity, you know, called me. In my mind, I was getting the fuck out of here to escape uh, the, uh, you know, what was a hard childhood for me in various ways, not just being in poverty, but what I call creative poverty, right? So my ideas, the things that I had witnessed as a kid traveling here made me weird, odd, other you know, the worst thing you could be called back then was gay. You know, it just made you, whatever, you know, especially in the hood, you know. And um, and so anytime I would go visit my, my people in New York, my cousins or whatever, or honestly any other place I would go, I would have, I would say these ideas or these things and people were like, yo, that's cool. Yo, what's, you, you like that song? I like that song. Or I've never even heard of that song, but I need to get it, you know. And here, you know, <laughs> nah. If it wasn't uh, Mystic Styles Volume 13 or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it wasn't going down. Um, and so, like I said, I escaped. Uh, so when I went to a hip-hop show much, you know, many years later here, 
when I saw what was happening here, I was very surprised. Um, and I just remember I went home confused. <laughs> I was like, all right, what the fuck happened? Like, you know what I mean? Something happened, you know, either either the place has changed or I've changed or both. Um, and, uh, you know, I just started meeting people. Um, and I just got really curious about the place. So what was supposed to be a temporary thing, uh, I started to consider maybe building something here with the things that I had learned uh, in other places. And most importantly, the number one thing, the number one thing that let that said plant here was that I came across young 18-year-old people who reminded me of me. And they were saying things I was saying. And I was like, man, this has got to stop at some point. You know, at some point, somebody's got to stay. Somebody's got to help build. This place creates and sends off so much talent. Now, you know, I'm talking in and outside of music. Like, I mean, in tech and just being creative in general, you know, and in various ways. A lot of the greatest minds have come from Memphis. And at some point, somebody's got to say, all right, man, let's build here. And it's cheaper to build here. <coughs> really right? Is. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So... I saw an opportunity to um, do my part, and I started building. Well, it's like one of those things I was talking, uh, I think it was to my parents the other day, about how people make money in a place, and then they go spend it other places. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of the same thing. Definitely. You grow up, you get all of this here, and then you go and give it to the another community, See, or another person. The thing, the thing about that that's interesting is a kind of an interesting dynamic with that thought. I a million percent agree with that thought re regarding here. But the thing about that thought in, in Memphis is just that, you know, Memphis invests in you in a very Memphis way. What do I mean by that? Memphis doesn't invest in you like, hey, son, you need to be strong. Let me help you work out and let me give you these nutrients. Memphis just keeps slapping you in the face <laughs> so you have no choice but to be able to take a punch, right? So you become, it's like Karate Kid. You, you, you're sweeping the floor, you're painting the fence, and you don't even realize you learn how to block, how to sweep. <laughs> so, you know, you're from Memphis, and you don't even know what you gained here, oftentimes until you go somewhere else. That's true. What about the pace in Memphis? How does that affect creativity? Um, so I am probably the oddest. I'm going to answer that question unlike anybody else will. All right. When I first got back here, it was depressing. Oh, it's bad. You know, it was depressing. Uh, it was depressing for me because I went to New York to, I'm a little brother. I have two big brothers. They didn't let me get a jump shot in. They didn't let me win no Connect Four. They didn't let me win nothing. You know what I'm saying? And anytime they got to shove me out the way they did. And so, again, what does that do? That makes you play basketball better. It makes you smarter at Connect Four. It makes you stand so strong so when they push you, you're not, you're not really falling over. Um, and that's how I grew. So I moved to New York with the idea of like, oh, okay, it's another big brother. He's going to either force me to run faster and think faster and think smarter. Um, coming back here, man, that, that was not the case. You know what I mean? Um, it was a lot more, hey, let's get to it tomorrow or next week or and then what I found even more so was that my sense of urgency and the things I wanted to accomplish alienated me 
alienated me. It was depressing. Uh, the first year I was back here, again, like, I was sad. Um, because, you know, I grew up being odd here, and then now I, you know, I learned to run this speed and think about that. And I even, I even thought about slowing down. I thought about, like, your name, you allergy. You should calm down, man. Enjoy the moment. You know what I'm saying? You, over, you overreacting. You shouldn't be so mad at these people. Nah, man, chill, man. It's gonna come. Look at them. They believe. You believe. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Believers. Right. Look, look at them. It's just so comfortable because they know. <laughs> right. But it wasn't challenging. It was not challenging at all. And it definitely wasn't the atmosphere that would make someone better, that would prepare them for what's outside of these walls called right. Memphis. Right? And then I just realized um, one day I said these words. Nah, fuck that. And then I said, <laughs> and then I was out. I was like, nah, man. All of my success, it was just like that. Nah, space. You know what I'm saying? And I just said, nah, man. I'm going to go back to who I am and what I do. And um, in order to do that, I had to subtract some of the people that were around me. Because, you know, who you're around is, directly affects everything. What you eat, how you think, mm-hmm. what you wear, right? And uh, so I had to subtract a lot of the people that were around me. You know, and a week and a half later, I was in L.A. doing some crazy stuff uh, <laughs> with some crazy people. So. infrastructure part um, I don't want to get too deep right, I'm not going to get too deep but I kind of feel like I equate Memphis to alright I'm, I'm a black man right um, it's you know the, the, the key difference between I think being a black person in America in 2018 and say being a Hispanic person or uh, Jewish or whatever um, is that everybody, all, all of these other races or entities um, they have a history and a culture to reach back into right, to help solidify to accept or deny uh, uh, you know an idea of culture, right um, black people don't really have that, you know. Um, I don't, you know, people love to say Africa. Africa was a big-ass continent with a whole bunch of countries and a whole bunch of cities and a whole bunch of tribes, a whole bunch of ways of doing things, a whole bunch of religions. Uh, that's just not enough to give me an identity. Um, and so, as a black man, what, what, our, what our plight is, is that when it comes to identity, 
we don't have anything to reach back to, so the burden is for us to create it now, right? So that 200 years from now, you know, I, I, the people who come after us can feel like they have an identity to reach back on. Because right now, we're reaching back on slavery. That's a terrible way to start our identity mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and in terms of valuing who and what we are, mm -hmm. right? That's my position as a black man. As far as Memphis goes, I, ve I feel very similarly, right? Um, the only difference is just that the infrastructure was once here. But, but right now, we're at a spot where we have to create it. We have to stop and create it or people will be complaining and suffering the downfall of a, you know, either the previous identity or lack of, of an identity. Uh, we have to do what's necessary. We have to either leave here or do what's necessary to create the identity that 200 years from now people can look back to and say, this is where I came from, right? Um, specifically when it comes to pushing forward and definitely in hip hop. Um, how has, you know, Memphis has always kind of been known as like this more of a grassroots, you know, DIY music space. Yeah. There's not really that industry sure. here. Is that what you mean by like someone's got to maybe build an industry or is it something like you have the space to be creative whereas you might not have that space in other places? It's both. Yeah. It's both. I think, you know, <clears throat> so I feel special with what I'm about to say. I had a conversation with my man Marcus Samuelson, you know, <laughs> celebrity chef. When we were up in uh, New York, um, he came to me after he invited us up there to do a show. We did a show at his restaurant. And afterwards, I was talking to him about a, uh, a staff meeting that I overheard happening at the restaurant. And, you know, I'm a producer. The number one thing a producer does is listen, right? You have to be an expert listener. When I, and when I hear, when I get a chance to absorb something that I'm, I'm not supposed to absorb or I catch him passing, I'll pause. Me and you could be walking down the street. You could be full on in conversation. If I, I'll be like, I heard a staff meeting. I was like, wait a minute. This is a staff meeting for a world-renowned organization. I want to hear this. I want to hear what the culture is, what, how they're approaching things. And so they're talking about, uh, they go, they, they, it was really dope. They were talking about lamb and how, you know, they need people to get the lamb. And it was going into super depth. And I was just amazed at how accountable uh, everybody was in the situation or whatever. And I was talking to him, I was talking to him about that and how I had learned from you know, overhearing his staff uh, meeting. He was like, yeah, man, that's the New York culture, is to be that serious, to be that on point. But he was like, but you know what Memphis has? You know, you know what you know what makes Memphis great? I was like, what's up? He was just like, the creatives in Memphis get to spend their money on being creative. <laughs> he was just like, you know, up here, man, I mean, you know, you're spending your money on your creative and your art, but so much more of that goes to just surviving. You know, but he was like, down there, man, you know, you can take care of yourself and spend more time and, you know, and, and resources and being creative and expanding on being creative, you know. And when he said that, you know, I'm always excited when, um, when people who are in places that I admire or look up to say something that I've been thinking for a while, you know. That always excites me because then it just lets me know that I'm in the right, right mindset or Go in the right direction. If you throw a stone, don't hide your head. Mm. Don't judge for who I am. I'm the man. It's just 
against the wall, what's the plan? All you need to know is I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Damn it, I'm the man. If you talking shit, be a fan, I'm the man, I'm the man. I began to trust myself at levels I had never trusted myself. I had my professional beginning as a musician uh, came at the hands of creating music for licensing and sync opportunities. And so that was cool because it stretches you out, it makes you versatile. You got to be able to do this. I was also doing ghost production. Um, and for, a, for one producer, most of the time, but for a handful of producers in New York and New Jersey. And so if they were like, I would need something like this, I had to hop out of my mind and create it, you know what I'm saying? And so I had built up this routine of creating other people's visions. And whether or not it worked was based on them. And as soon as they said it worked, that's when I felt satisfied, right? It's cool, that's, fl that's learning a muscle, but the muscle you're, you know, it's going through atrophy, is your trust in yourself and your own vision, right? And when you get back down to Memphis, you got all the time in the world. You like, yeah, just try some crazy shit, you know what I'm saying? And um, <laughs> and uh, and I just remember right when I started Unapologetic, a part of that was like, it was very personal. I wear a mask. I mean, I don't, I'm not. A, I don't look in the mirror. So I say all that to say this: like, I I speak these next few sentences in the most humble, objective way possible. When I look back on my life, when I look back at all the things that I was successful with or proud of, it was my idea. Most of the things I was most proud of were my idea. I was a proud of some. I was a. I was a part of other things. There were other people's idea, but the things that went the furthest that I got the most out of, for who and what I was, was my idea. And so I didn't take that as my ideas were better than others. But what I did take that as is. I need to trust my ideas. So I began to trust myself. And that's when I, me being unapologetic was to trust myself, to walk in a direction without even, eventually learning to not even have and look at the ground. To just trust that I was heading in that direction. Lost in the dark. Lost in the dark. 
First year in college, I started DJing, um, just just kind of doing that thing. Um, and my family, all together, we all moved here, and so I went to University of Memphis, um, entered the music business program. I'm Kid Maestro, <laughs> uh, producer, engineer, artist, unapologetic. So my first day of orientation, like sometime in December or whatever. Um, they gave us like a tour of the studio in school. And that day, um, Pro was signed to um, Blue Time Records at the time. And they, Tradon um, and CCDE and whoever else was a part of that session, they had a, a huge session slash video recording situation going on that day. So that was when I met um, the entire Tradon crew. Uh, I Make Mad Beats was there. So that was the first time I met them. I was very impressed with more so pro. You know, I just like, yo, this dude is dope. I was super impressed. It was cool because they had like, he brought in his Moog, I'll never forget. Um, another producer was sitting next to him on a, on a, a iMac <laughs> with uh, FL Studio up and like Massive, which was like my favorite and only synth. At the time. <laughs> um, and so that was cool. I met, that's when I met them. I just saw that he was playing a beat showcase, um, like an opener for a Master A show at a venue across the street from Minglewood. I don't remember what the venue was called. Renaissance? Um, yeah, I think it was Renaissance. So, and so I had started to get interested in like artists, producers, producers that like, you know, tour by themselves and not necessarily like an in-studio kind of producer. So I was just interested in that. So I went to the show and it was crazy, like, I don't think I had met a, a hip-hop producer in person that was as good as he was, is what, what I heard. So it was like super crazy, super inspiring. You know, I spoke to him afterward after he got done rocking, um, and he just invited me to come through. And I came through the next day. When he first started coming around, um, man, I just saw the heart of a line. I really did. I saw I had never seen a guy his age, um, especially here, where there's really not many examples of, of moving at, with that level of urgency. I just hadn't seen it before. I believe in patterns. I don't believe in, you know, a moment. Like, after maybe a, maybe a month or two of being here, he would... Uh, I would just look back at him because I would be sitting right here mixing and he would just be sitting there just watching me. Like, oh, just watch him. See, everything I do, if I need something, he would be, try to be there before I got there. He was ready. And to him, how I went about things was what it looked like to be what you needed to be to get there. And so I got two things from that. Number one, damn, name, be very aware of what you're doing because <laughs> these people are like really looking at your patterns and not eating because of it. Like, that's scary. No, dog, go eat. Like, you know, and then secondly, oh, you're willing to sacrifice that to get better? Stay here. Now I know what I'm dealing with. All right, now that I know, let's go get something to eat together. How about that? Where are we going? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
trying to give you Yeah, um, my, my first time coming through here, I came through, um, my good friend who I call my big bro, um, Marco, was recording his, um, EP here, and, um, he would always tell me about, I make mad beats, he would tell me about this guy who had the studio with all of this equipment and all of this shit, and he was from New York, and he did this, and he did that, and I just never believed that anybody in Memphis was on the level of what Marco was talking about, so, we talked, I, I, w I had been hearing about math for maybe a year and a half before I actually stepped foot in Dirty Socks. And I just was like, bro, you keep telling me about this dude. He's like, yeah, you need to come to the studio. I'm like, yo, when the next time you going? And he would never he would never be up or he might not go for a little minute. I guess one day he felt like I was worthy <laughs> of coming through. <laughs> yeah, and I'm C Major, uh, producer, engineer with Unapologetic. me up he was like yo i'm coming to the studio you need to be here at this time um don't be late and all of this and so i think it's like nine in the morning or something like that so i make sure i'm here super early i'm might have got here before marco might have got here at the same time and i finally come in and um i get to meet mad and i just sit down and for the whole session i think mad, i think mad might have mixed a, you know, a little bit of the song but for most of the session it was me um him and kid and we just talked i don't know so we talked about like Kanye and a bunch of issues for like the whole day, or the whole session. And I just remember leaving that session like, dang, like it was just so inspiring. Not it wasn't it wasn't the conversation that we talked. It was like the levels in which we talked. It wasn't just like, oh Kanye is great. It was like why is he great? Like why does why does he do what he do? It was more methodical and it was just I I just left like man, this is a spot that I, you know, really <laughs> would enjoy being in every day and stuff. One day, um, Matt was just like, hey, if you ever, you know, want to come around um, on your own, you know, just come through. He gave me the, you know, come through. And so I just remember hitting him up and just being like, hey, could I come through? I feel like this may, might have been like the next week or something. And then from that, it led to an internship. I ended up getting an internship here. He's like, yo, you should intern. And I was like, yeah, yeah. So, and that what really, like, changed my creative process, changed my mixing process. I just learn so much from that and this place has just always been super special i've been involved with a bunch of production teams i've been around a bunch of different people here in the city um, i've been here my whole life uh memphis born memphis bred so like nothing ever felt like it did here nothing was ever as serious as it was here nothing was ever as consistent as it was here it would be you know, some days we meet up some days we don't know every day i'm here <laughs> and every day something's going on so the first time here we don't really do much I'm just talking and listening and having conversations because I can't tell them where to go until I know where they want to go I can't help them I'm not I'm not here to push them in a direction or I'm not here to push them in my idea of their direction I'm here to find out where they're going and then push them there push them in that direction you know maybe give them a faster car or a nicer looking car, but we're going in that direction. And I think that that requires a certain level of versatility, uh, but most importantly, it just requires you to listen and really, really try to find this person's goals, really try to find where this person's heart is, really, really find where their vulnerabilities are, find the things that matter most of them, that scare them. You know, those are the things that I think beyond any specific sound or approach to music make me what, who and what I am.
Thanks. This is the best day of my life. I'm killing myself tomorrow. I got way too many fucking problems. You know, trick my friends like Boy Scouts make them help me hold my bag. I think for me, um, a really consistent thing that's been going on is uh, a lot of the more like talented and important people that I meet that I end up like sticking around with for a while. I like meet them and have no idea <laughs> like who or what they are. So like I know most artists come through here like like yo I'm finally coming through, but I like legit had no <laughs> no idea about Dirty Socks or you know the consistency of you know Mad's brand or talents or anything. Um, I guess uh, initially. You know, I got out of college and it was just like, all I want to do is, is rap. So after that, every paycheck and all of that was just going towards branding and figuring out, doing things, man. I'm a weirdo from Memphis, aka Alpham, and I am a rapper slash freelance ugly dude. I ended up through like that year, earning my way to like a really small scale show where I met Kid Maestro at. And um, I think he like came back and just was like, yo, this cool rapper dude, we should keep an eye on him. So they were every now and then just you know looking at instagram what you've been up to i didn't know this but i ended up getting invited to like a session to record with a guy named skip and it just happened to be at dirty socks and just like with a you know with cj's pre-instructions you know skip was like really serious in the phone like you got to be on time don't do this and i was like all right and it's funny because like skip is like this super laid-back dude and he you know sometimes i have to be like like skip what's going on so like for him to just be like I'm serious. I, mean, I was like, okay. Maybe I should make a noose with my dog leash. Then I came back like a second time after that without Skip. And you know, after that, he played some of his catalog, and I'm like, oh man, you know, this guy's like, I'm kind of out here, you know. And that was also the time. I guess I got lucky, um, in coming through like that consistently that time, just because like. I was supposed to be recording a song called EFE or Everybody Fucks Everybody <laughs> for short. And then the people that I was supposed to record with just like flaked on me like like two hours before the session. But I had the music video for it planned like a day or two later or something like that. And um, man, I was just like, yeah, you know, come through. So came through, we recorded like the skeleton of it. It was all good. We played some more stuff. It was like really like magical feeling. Nobody would sell me a beat ever, you know? <laughs> so I spent like the first year of rapping, just rapping off whatever Doom and Wu Tang and, you know, just Raekwon stuff that I thought was cool. That's all my mixtapes were, <laughs> were just like on original beats. And I just kind of reached like a point where I was like, I think I can make more original ideas if I started with like something from scratch versus like remix freestyle whatever but it was hard you know nobody wants to everybody wants their beat to succeed so nobody wants to just sell their beat <laughs> into like you know John Everyman so starting from zero nobody was trying to do that so for him who's like producing for stars and all that to see just any kind of like small shimmers in me like let me like start like rocking on this stuff was like you know it's crazy it's like it's exciting but also like intimidating too um i really learned through just the different sounds that i heard here and how they're like made in the final product i learned about the importance of quality like overall you know and not just the beat but what i have to do also you know like um 
a good recorded like vocal sequence and like what you say and all that allows like everything that you do to the beat and everything afterwards just be that much more special if you have that type of personality trait to where that i got to get better it's like a driving thing then <laughs> this is like a the epitome of where you want to like hang out you know so before I came here, I was recording in the middle of, like, somebody's, like, smoked-out living room. <laughs> you know, random people getting invited in the middle of your session. Like, man, what you... What you, you sound like a Wu-Tang dude. What is this? <laughs> like, they, I'm talking about people blatantly, like, laughing and snickering. I can hear them through the, you know, the feedback in between sessions. Like, it's just... It's infuriating, but it just makes you focus and go harder. Then you just like, come here. My first time coming in here, you know, you just don't see... The door was closed, so I just don't even see where you record. And just like, yo, it's good. You know, like, he like opens up the like the giant and I walk in and look around like, yo, this is like a legit booth. <laughs> and he was like, yo, give me like a check. And like I spoke in the mic and just heard like this like magical like echo and I was like, yo, <laughs> we about to make a real song here. <laughs> Before we started recording, I came in on the tail end of like a Cameron Bethany session, you know. So, you know, just kinda of couple people posted up and they played like interest for me and it was like the chord progressions and like the last few seconds of that I was just like man these people like had like the ear for this stuff you know like the stuff I'm not a producer at all so I don't know the terminology at all especially at that time I just know how to be like hey that's it you know and I think I just really got excited like man somehow I got to figure out <laughs> being like more consistently a part of this man so after that I just started throwing myself I thought I was like moving uncomfortably before but after that I was like no like I gotta like do more. So I was just like, if it was possible to record here, I would just book it with no song written and then just pull up like four hours earlier and just sit like a block away and just like write it and be like, hey, you don't get to record if a song doesn't get written. So, and just sit outside, you know, just that's been kind of like the culture of like improvement and like hustle, you know, ever since. You know, Dirty Socks is like a really magical place. Um, I don't think you have to keep it a secret. You keep things secrets when everybody has an equal opportunity to win, but you can just blatantly be truthful about what this place is because if you don't have the character to do what you need to do here, then you'll kind of like, you know, find yourself exiting yourself out of the building anyway. So you can just kind of be like, hey, yeah, this is where the magic happens and this is how it happens because if you weren't meant for it, then. Just me growing up, I think I in my adult life, me figuring out who I am, um, I don't think there was anybody that I it was there wasn't anybody I trusted or believed in enough. To, to, when them, he was the only person to hold me accountable in a way that understood my plight as an artist, as a man and just understanding that uh, was was really a lot so it was, it was a type of respect because I never had any big brothers uh, like big homies like that that understood my plight so that was one key reason why I kept coming around here because even if we got into it, even if it was a good conversation, even when it was hard like it was a sense of like 
as always wants me to get better. And we you know what I'm saying we had, you know, some 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 live conversations. <laughs> and and it's it's never been a sense of like after the conversation no matter no matter how harsh it gets, even when you know what I'm saying he had to push me away, it was always a sense of respect in that factor and that's what always kept me there. That was one. Uh two, it was character. Like uh I could have gone anywhere and like recorded anywhere, but it was just a, a sense of of character like I believe in this person and what he's built and the foundation like he has around him and that was another key reason like you know I love being there because I was just young dumb and just looking for just you know growing up and trying to figure myself and the third reason I would have to say is just the culture and dirty socks like here like the reason why I just kept coming like back um, and I feel like you know in on the Memphis side uh, I feel like you know I just seen this culture just grow and develop from when I was, you know, a part of like, you know, the bad group and how I've seen it, just everything just grow and develop more. <laughs> and it's just like I always respected the culture of Dirty Socks. And like, those are just key, three key reasons. And like I, none of those reasons were just because of like the sound. Like I always felt like, you know, the sound was like great, but I always felt like me, I'm, I might be big headed. I always felt like I was dope, but those weren't the reasons why like I stayed here. It was definitely just those other three reasons and the music just, you know, just captivated just because all of those three things mixed together made made it what it was. Welcome! Hello, and welcome to Stuntarius. Back on the, no, fuck that. Yeah. Is that, that's how Unapologetic was born? No, nah, I mean, that's exactly what it was, was I knew I had a, you know, I had, I've been a part of several teams before. Um, I have a good friend named Kevin DeLebon, and he's a guy who, you know, for some reason, I consider myself very self-aware. I think you have to be self-aware, you know, I feel like the more self-aware I am, the better. My dad told me a long time ago, you want to know people, know yourself, you know what I'm saying? And so I consider myself self-aware. But there's, there are guys, there are people I run into that like, hold up a mirror in a very special way that allow you to see something about yourself you wouldn't already saw. But one day he's here and he's sitting here and then he comes in and he's like, Nemo, what's going on? What's good? And I was down. Uh, I was down because I, I just felt like I wasn't where I wanted to be at. I've never been the kind of guy that really finds success or joy in solo successes. Like, that's just not me, you know what I'm saying? I have friends who are producers who they, they've never been a part of the crew. They've always just made beats and then just, you know, you know, got placements with people, blah, 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 whatever. I've just always been more likely to, like, want to be a part of a team and produce my team. And, you know, the success of my productions would be the success of the artists or the team that I, I invested in. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I had previously been a part of, you know, a handful of teams. And, you know, as much as people would tell me, you know, what you're creating is dope and this and that, you know, I would get compliments. You know, in my mind, that just wasn't where I wanted to be at, and it bothered me. And I, I was just at this point where it's like, I was just a very low point in my career. Um, and my man Kevin, he said to me, um, but Neem, you can't be too down on yourself. Every team you've ever been on, you were drafted into. You were chosen. You've never actually put a team together yourself. I was like... Damn, you're right. You know, he's like, if you put a team together, you're going to put a team together with your your ideal, you know, you're going to reach for specific characteristics, certain uh, patterns of action, 
certain things that you know are more likely to suit what is your idea of success and it's true every every other team that i've been a part of i was drafted into because of what i did but i was also drafted into it because people could lean on me because i was so driven and dedicated you know what i'm saying you know i had never been a part of a team of people as my height or taller than me right um and so i wanted to I was really coming, I just had a whole bunch of visions, man. And with this guy, Kevin, man, he'll have you really believing in yourself. <laughs> he really will, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Y'all know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Compared me to Beethoven. And, uh, and, and it was funny because um, I was just like, you mean I'm a musical genius? He's like, nah, that's not what I'm saying. I was like, man, fam, I thought you was my man. He was like, nah, nah, I mean it a different way. He was like, um, he said that Beethoven, by the time he was 11, he had, or nine, I can't remember, he had mastered the piano, right? And that he had realized that in order to reach true legendary status, to, to excel further, he was gonna have to include, uh, he was gonna have to do it at the hands of a concerto. The thing with Beethoven that made that his greatest challenge was the fact that he had such a specific vision on the way things would go that he would oftentimes almost get to fighting, you know, don't play like this, play like this. And people were just like, yo, this guy's crazy. You know what I'm saying? But it wasn't until his first concerto and the success of it that people were like, nah, actually this guy knows what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? And he was just like, and it was up to a guy who had depended on himself for years to now learn how to formulate the team to do it. You know, it just left me thinking, you know, about formulating a team and what, what I would have to pull out of myself to do it properly. I'm an alien. Another person happens, now we're just two crazy humans. Another person happens, I can make a culture. I can make something that, oh, this is, we have to, this is how we need to operate in order to achieve our goals. And um, that's pretty much how this team was formulated, with those ideas in mind and with my previous failures, always right there, like, don't allow this. Because if you allow that, you're enabling this. Who would you want to go to war with? The guy that you know has the idea of war, or the guy who's seen it has that the look in his eye, like you can see everything he was willing to go through, everything that he's gone through, and that's always been him. So when before unapologetic was formed, when I knew he had the idea, I knew whatever it was gonna be because anything like he ever touches, like he's gonna go hardest, go hard for it. Like I knew it was gonna be something phenomenal, something that's never happened before. So like just seeing all of this like come come into fruition, I'm really not too surprised, but I, I just knew what it took and I, because I saw him. So. Come, when I started coming here, I was not a novice in producing. I was I had been producing for a while. I was, and I, I thought I was pretty good at it. I, was, I had like very good ideas and a, a great creative mind, but like my technical side, like the way my stuff sounded, mixing and all of that stuff was trash. But, and, and, I, and I would play, and I would play stuff for other people. Like, like I said, I had been involved in situations before. And I would play stuff for other people, and everybody else would just be like, "That's you know, it's dope." Like Memphis mentality, oh man, that shit hard, you know, that shit, that shit. But nobody gives you the real constructive criticism. Either niggas, either people hating, or either they just gonna be like, "All right, it's cool, it's cool." This man, I played some stuff to him, and I played him some, you know, at the time, some of my hardest stuff. And he legit turned around and was like, "Yo, you know, it's, this is good, this is dope, but your mix is trash." And he legit <laughs> told me that nobody had ever told me that before. And so I was like, "Damn." 
and he and he's right. Like, it, ain't, it ain't no arguing with that. You know, he played. I'm hearing some of his shit. I'm like, yeah, you you're definitely right. And not only did he tell me that, which he kept it super G with me, he showed me <laughs> like he legit opened up the book and was like, hey, this is this is how you do it. And so every day I could come in here and just sit behind him and watch him mix and not even just mix but watch like the choices he makes while he's producing like how the mixing process doesn't start with after the beat it starts before you touch a note like just learning so many different techniques man that's what kept me like coming back day to day that's what still keeps me coming back i still gotta you know come up so I once heard somebody say, uh, when it comes to a party, the DJ isn't the most important person. The most important person is the first person who starts dancing, right? Because that person is giving everybody else permission to follow the DJ. You know, that's, that's one thing about me. The reason why people be like, be on time, is because I want something in a way that intimidates people. And I won't dumb that down ever again. It's who I am. It's um, unapologetic. I'm yeah. very unapologetic. It's the foundation of it. I was scared the shit out of you at the door. Let you know I'm serious. You know what yeah. I'm saying? People don't call me to chill. They call me to build. So that was my idea of being unapologetic. Being unapologetically true to your art. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever it is that you do, you know, as a career, whatever, being true to that. Um, and then when we kind of got further into the company, I realized that there's another level to it, which is actively being unapologetic. Like you can, like, you can do what you want to do, but then there's like actively not giving a fuck. You know what I'm saying? And then that's that's where I, you know, saw examples like Awful, um, who like super like not only did what he wanted to do with his art, but presented it in a way that was like super like letting you know when he walks in like this guy is different and whatever he's about to say whatever he's about to do whatever he's about to present don't expect it to be whatever you thought it was going to be it's going to be whatever he wants it to be and you just like there's no way you look at him or there's no way you look like a guy look at a guy who walks in with a mask on and just expect them to like conform to whatever you thought you was going to get out get out of them um so there's like actively um being unapologetic and i think you're, cause you, you just get bombarded with so much stuff that it's so easy to conform if you're like self-observant and in tune with who you are, you know, and affirm yourself and speak things into existence and like actively research what you're trying to accomplish and know that's what you want like daily to make sure you are being unapologetic because that's like, that's an active thing. It's not, you, I don't feel like you can be passively unapologetic. punch that hits hardest is the one least expected right so it's the one you didn't see coming Memphis you know it's funny all the things that admit that people complain about Memphis for is why this is gonna work you know it, <laughs> you know uh, 
it's just it's just funny. I think it's I think it's hilarious, you know, um, that you know Memphis is stuck in the past. Memphis is 15 years behind. Memphis, the front door of Memphis doesn't represent people who look like me properly. Uh, you know, when you think of rap, you don't. There's there's one little thing you think of, right? It's so I love it because if Memphis was, I love it and I hate it. I I hate it because it's not where it needs to be, but I love it because it's primed for the biggest punch out the block ever. There's not um, a hub of artists like this, and what Memphis is, like the mecca of hip hop, <laughs> and like every everywhere you go, you know, Memphis sound is everywhere. I, I feel as though this sound is just key for us because it shows that you don't have to like be in that part of that same stereotype or that same trap sound or just uh, it's the same history that you know uh, our Memphis sound is so I feel our impact like what we're creating for the city and even, not even only what we're creating for the city it's just the character around us is, is showing you that you know you can do that wherever you <laughs> you wherever you're at so I feel like what we're doing in Memphis is speaking volumes for maybe a group of people that are in Wyoming or Idaho or just somewhere just you know that needs like that inspiration uh, or that do-it-yourself like upcome to show them that it's very possible. So I feel like that's why what we're doing in 2018, despite what, you know, Asia Orange is doing, you know, I feel like what we're doing is just really just vital for our city and it's only gonna compound, like, and just expand more. If I could speak selfishly um, from uh, my city standpoint, I think um, that it's so important and even more important now than ever, because I just think this, I think Memphis is on the cusp of something and we're ready for something that's never happened here before. I think they're, are definitely things missing here but i think even with those things missing we have the resources and uh, everything that we make here we never sit still it's always self-exploration you know audio exploration and everything and we end up figuring out new stuff that we didn't even know we wanted to do in the process and it's happening a lot and i think it's reaching that spot where 2018 2019 is the time where this is most likely and most needed to be seen So let's let's think Kendrick. Kendrick came from Compton, right? You know, before Kendrick, when you heard the name Compton, you thought of the most gangster shit ever. You know what I'm saying? You thought of gang banging, you thought of rags, you you know, you thought of the game, you thought of Dr. Dre, you thought of, you know, death, kill, murder, you know what I'm saying? Um, and then Kendrick came out and one of the things that made while Kendrick is an amazing lyricist, an amazing artist, a big part of his story was that he represented a very underrepresented side of the coin of what it is to be from Compton. Memphis is even further in that direction than Compton was, you know? Um, and so for us to be doing this now and what we represent now and how we go about it now is very important because I feel like we have a unique opportunity that doesn't come around often. To be a voice, like, you know, I always say you judge a hero by his villain, right? So if your villain is weak, you know, how, how important is the hero? Well, 
this villain been here for 40 years. He's been, <laughs> he been holding it down, and he's seemingly undefeated, right? Well, maybe something will knock him off his chair. And when it does, it becomes an example for not only those who doubt and those who lack pride internally, and now is where we go to nationally, segue, right? But to those who feel like that about their communities nationally to internationally. You go somewhere else, man. You say Memphis, people stand up. They military salute you. They just, you know, they start, you know, doing, no, I'm just playing. But they, <laughs> but they, they really respect you, you know, for being from Memphis. Okay, so there's two sides of that. Number one is the respect level. Number two, they know Memphis. So Memphis is this town where it's extremely cheap to live. Right? It's pushed all the way this direction, primed to be pushed over here, and it has international visibility. There are cities in other countries that have festivals based on the shit we mm -hmm. create. Mm -hmm. Right? And so that's why it's, this is a perfect time to be unapologetic. It's a perfect time for what we went through growing up to weaponize into what's going to break us out of this. I always say when I go into meetings with people, hey, you hear that? Of course you don't hear it. It's, it's what's called a silent riot, right? It's where people are finally frustrated enough to change something. I think about people like, you know, uh, Gotti represent, you know, salute to the king. I think about 3-6 represent salute to the kings. Um, you know, but then at the same time, I think about, like, you know, 36 Chambers. I think of uh, RZA, you know what I'm saying? And the thing that RZA did that will forever circulate in my mind that I feel like, this is what made Rizza the genius that he is, right? If, you, if you've been to New York or if you know the five boroughs in New York, you know, you know, Bronx, Queens, Manhattan, you know, Brooklyn, right? And then you know Staten Island. You know, Staten Island is nothing like the other four boroughs. You know, it's more suburb, more residential than any sort of place that people go and visit and be like, wow, nah, man. You go and you look at the fair and you're like, oh, look, it's Staten Island. Let's go back. Like, <laughs> Right? Yeah. Okay. Rizzo was from Staten, a.k.a. Shaolin. And um, he grabbed these this group of people who some of them didn't, they, some of them had beef with each other. Some of them, they didn't know each other, but they all knew Rizzo and they all believed in Rizzo. Rizzo grabbed his team. They made an album called 36 Chambers. Right? Shortly after that, Rizzo made a clothing line called Woo Wear. Right? This is the first person to ever do this, by the way. Now it's a very standard thing. Like, you make half of a hip-hop song, you got a clothing line, you got, you know what I'm saying? Now it's yeah. a very, we got to start the clothing line. Yes. Like, Rizzo was the first person to ever do this, right? He made Woo Wear. Now, Rizzo was on top of the world. Everybody knew Rizzo, you know what I'm saying? People who didn't speak English, you know, Rizzo, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you like that? Um, and, <laughs> and so, Rizzo could have, had this clothing line anywhere. He could have had it, you know, as soon as you walk in the door at Barney's or whatever, he could have had it. He could have made a store right in Times Square. He could have went to L.A. and Amoeba Records and then Woo Wear. But you know what he did? He made a Woo Wear store right in the middle of Staten Island, right on Victory Boulevard. So now, you know, in a place nobody would really visit. You would just look at, oh, look, it's Staten Island. All right. Now there are people from all across the world who were like, man, we gotta go stand now. It's Wu Wear store, man. Like we can order this on the internet, we can do this, blah blah. But it's not you might see somebody from Wu Tang if you go to the Wu Wear store. Right? So there's people from Thailand, Guam, Mongolia, Korea, 
who were like, we got to go to Staten Island, right? What did RZA do differently from our hip-hop forefathers in Memphis? RZA did something amazing, and then he made you go to where he came from, right? He gave you a reason to believe in and soak in what was Staten Island and what Staten Island could create. People did that here, and now this city clings to that 40 or 50 years ago. We've had people, again, we've had people from here, we've had this place create things that could make that happen again. But no one has done that with intention, right? I want to go down, I want to go downtown, I want to go somewhere, midtown, somewhere. Sure, salute to the greats, salute to Stacks, salute to, you know, Royals, salute to all of those people, man. We love them, we sampled them, we listened to their music for inspiration. But I'm trying to see a store I ain't never seen before that's got 18-year-olds lining up like it's supreme. Why? Because we create something unique to the, to the world here. The world knows it, right? Make these people come to where we from. Make these people have a new reason to come here, right? A new reason to soak up what we create. And maybe we can own our success instead of other places, six hours south, uh, capitalizing off what we created, right? But it starts with us having the pride here, man. And that's that's my dream. That's what that's what I'm aiming at. And I, but I feel like it starts it starts with the with the business cards, which is our music. It starts with all these other things and so forth. And once we create that example, why did 36 Chambers work? You listen to the what what the what was happening with the rest of hip hop coming out of New York at the time. 36 Chambers was way over there. They had to be unapologetically themselves. They started off their album, bring the motherfucking ruckus. No pop hits, you know, single in that, you know what I'm saying? No nothing. You know, they went at it from a very dusty, dark, kung fu angle that no one had ever seen before. It had to be a punch no one saw coming for it to work. And so when I look at RZA, I think, man, did you know all this shit before you did it? Well, look, smart people learn from their own uh, mistakes. Um, wise people learn from the mistakes of others. Your, yours was a success. I'm going to learn from your success. You know? I hope that can happen for Memphis. At the very least, I hope I can play my part. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams. Check us out at sonospherepodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.